This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you very much for, for, the, for those of you who have submitted questions. Um, we'll go ahead and first start off with um, sort of a general question, but maybe... Um, Starting off with a, a statement that Lewis Breton had made about how close are we to the cure, I think that's front and foremost in, in many people's minds. There was he had articulated um, the progress, and um, I wonder if some of the other panelists would be able to comment on their perspective, given all the various approaches that were presented this evening regarding time frames for the various approaches and what we should expect to see in the next five years, in the next ten years, etc. I remember Margaret Heckler <laughs> when she said, oh, I will have an HIV vaccine in, what was it, two years or something like that. So I think we're in our infancy. Um, I think that we're, uh, the fact that there are precedents that, there, that a cure is possible is huge. I mean, it, it now becomes more of a technical issue as opposed to a theoretical uh, but it still is a big technical problem, finding the right combinations, finding the right type of immune manipulations, et cetera. So I would not hazard to guess how far away we are from a cure, but it's, um, it's going to be measured in, in many years, in my opinion. So, I, yeah, I, um, I think I, I'm just very obviously excited that we have a cure in these few patients. And I think we didn't have that before. So when I also put up that slide with Timothy, I, I was, it was fascinating for me when he was in Seattle that he sort of catalyzed this entire new field. Now, I think at least we know that we can cure. So that has been fascinating for me. Now, I think we need to, need to find out what exactly is this allergenic or those T cells from the different donor? What exactly do these cells do? And how can we take that knowledge then and make it safer? Like with the, what we've heard now from several speakers too, for, with this car technology. We know we can do that. For cancer, we are doing this right now. We can take these cells. We can learn from this allergenic effect. We can now take the immune system and engineer it to make it really to do the same thing as in these patients, but likely safer. So I do think it'll be possible to achieve it, uh, but it will take some time. Okay. Mike McKean. I'd divide the question out in two ways. First would be that for different population groups, there may be different time frames. For pediatric populations, we don't talk about them much here in the States because we don't see much infection of kids in the States, but it happens abroad. There's no reason why we couldn't diagnose early, treat early, and have what happened with the Mississippi baby happen more frequently. We have the capability to do that today, and I think that's something that we really need to take advantage of. The Visconti cohort shows us if we, if we treat or if we diagnose and we treat adults early that the same thing may happen, albeit in a, in a smaller percentage. And that's something that, that brings to bear the, the logistics of, of, of having diagnosis available to all of those who might be at risk and, and anybody else, for that matter, who, who, uh, who could deserve the therapy. So when we think about chronically infected patients, that's probably the, the hardest patient population group to work with because it's, it's, it's one where there's a great, a great deal of variability. And there I would say the time frame is likely to be longer. Unless, and this is the second part of the discussion, some therapies are going to be harder to achieve than others. Okay, I, I think um, 
we do have proof of principle with bone marrow transplantation and gene therapy. Difficult things, hard to pay for, um, hard for the patient to withstand. If some of the other hypotheses that I showed are correct, then there is the possibility that there are existing therapies. Some of them are on the shelf. Some of them are off patent, anti-inflammatories in particular, which might be provided in a way that, that occurs more quickly than we could imagine. And what's, what's very helpful to me now is that we have a lot of scientists around the world and many in this room who are looking very carefully at each of these hypotheses and trying to weigh um, which is the most likely to be um, correct, and then of those, which is the most likely to provide a fast um, therapy for many. And I think that's really the, the, the discussion that will take place in the next, I would say, three to five years. So, uh, yeah, we, you know, we live in a world where we, we want to think of the end result, the goal. And, um, you know, the cure is such a, a loaded word, and there's many definitions of getting to that final cure place. And what I think is important is that we take care of some of the advances that might be made from some of this research happening. And one of those is exactly a trial that I participated in that has reset my CD4 count to a higher level. So what does that mean clinically? We're not really exactly sure right now, but what we do know is that that was a big advance, is to take someone like me who was sequentially ther therapy treated over the years from the beginning of, of HIV therapy, continually building resistance to almost every HIV drug to where I had a pretty low uh, CD4 count, um, and now, with a gene therapy trial that I enrolled in, I was able to get my T cells to double, and they've stayed that way now for three years. So, so let's look at some of those iterative um, advances that can be made through this research and this science, but still keep our mind on the ultimate goal. So in what we heard today in some of the background um, it is clear that the research and the advances that have been made in this field was a result of unique collaborations between academia, the private sector, but especially um, community involvement and some key individuals were, were mentioned. Um, does anybody um, want to comment on that and in terms of what how the community can currently participate in um, supporting some of these advances um, in terms of support of the, the cause, but also how does one um, get involved in some of these clinical trials? Some of the questions we're receiving this evening from the audience are related to the practical aspects of that. I'd like to answer that first, if only to be able to say a few more words about Marty Delaney. So I grew up as a lab rat in a closet that was appropriately locked because the work that I did was best done alone. And I gravitated through schools and did research in the way most researchers do research, which is alone. And we are honed not only to work alone, but to compete with others. Um, it's still ingrained in our system. But it's you know especially so in the beginning days of the epidemic, the um, science that went forward then was in many ways intellectually as brutal as the death that was taking place in, in the clinics because many scientists that were very bright were fighting with one another. And to me, it was, it was really amazing to see 
not only the care that took place of patients with HIV in the wards at San Francisco General Hospital, but also the, the way in which Marty Delaney, um, almost an organizational psychologist by training, brought together scientists who would otherwise have fought and made them um, realize that by working together, their goals might be more, uh, more rapidly achieved um, in common. And that, that is something which I believe in San Francisco was taught with a, with a greater degree of emphasis and reception than, than many other cities. And I think in large part, it's because of what he did that, that um, we have made such great strides. But we still have very far to go, right? There, there, the, I talked about teams of teams and teams of academic teams forming with teams of biotech pharma teams that have profit motives and other um, ideals that they need to, to reach. The very same principles, I think, that he taught are, are ones which are pertinent there. And, and again, it comes from that community. And you, you, know, you are the community. And the, the thing about this community um, still is that it's very interactive, as I think you know, is witnessed by the fact that you're all here tonight. So what can you do? I think it's it's what you've always done, which is to ask questions about what's happening and to push healthcare providers to to reach further down into their you know their their will and 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 their their uh, their ability to do risky experiments. All of this is quite risky, um, and and we need that interaction in our in order to move forward. I'd I'd like to just. Um go back to a couple of different items that were shared tonight. You have heard so much in the media. The the media has come back into the HIV space in a real concerted way. Um, Some of the news that you've heard uh, is hyped. Some of the news that you've heard um, is accurate. Um, But in general, what is seen strictly in the media doesn't necessarily hit... uh, at the tone necessary to have a constructive conversation and education about HIV. And so um, it's up to the community to carry that message oftentimes. And the activists, uh, not just here but throughout uh, the world, uh, have been getting more and more involved uh, in these types of conversations to parse out what is and isn't, what's misinformation, what might be false information that they've seen. The Internet nowadays, um, for good or for bad, distributes so much information that sometimes it's difficult to parse out. So one of the key pieces of the puzzle, and is always an important piece, is making sure that the information is carried to the community effectively and that it's accurate information. Um, And I think that that's where... Uh, the community can always play an active role. And just one more thing. That's a challenge. That's a huge challenge for the community because the science is incredibly complicated and, and challenging to, to portray to a community of, of, of lay audience and lay people who don't 
even have a basic understanding of HIV. So it's a big challenge for our community. We, we do have, fortunately, community advisory boards that have started with the Marty Delaney Collaboratory, which are working on educational programs, but also involved in every step of the research, as we always have been. And so that's a place to start, to ask questions. Uh, also ask your national organizations. And Mike, thank you so much for saying that about how you have to really parse out the information and be careful with what you with what you read and, and Lewis too that that's really critical that you don't spread that information that might be misleading or mis or provide false hope. So so I think I think there needs and there probably is an appreciation but but there needs to be even better appreciated that all of these all of these all this work is really costly and while I, while I think maybe in the end the treatment that really does work might very well be simple when it's all worked out it might be easy to explain and it might come across well why didn't we get that in the first place you know what what we kind of doing here again tonight is is looking at a whole array of opportunities for 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 targeting this disease in a way that, that can that can stop it and somehow we've got to learn you know from each other and 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 from the the studies that we're doing you know what what is going to be the most effective way and I, and I don't think we can kind of stop in the USA we've got we've got to really you know, take this challenge to, to, to where the infection is still raging in a, in a huge fire in Africa and, and in some other places. So that, all this takes money, and, and, and it can't get done without money. So I think there, there's, there's, there's a noise that's needed to, 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 to be supportive of, of the work that, that's being done. There's also the voices need to be heard at the FDA because, you know, there's a degree of... Uh, um, risk aversion at, 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 in government and, and, and government regulators are fairly risk averse and they need to hear from people who really want something to happen so uh, you know those major organisations that are, that are focused on on trying to find cures uh, you know they, they, they need to sort of work together and, and I, I think it's one of the really pleasing parts of what we've been able to do is, is be able to link you know, researchers all around the world, but link them together, get them to collaborate, you know, use the high-tech bit here with that there, with the, the resource here, with that, and, and really make it sort of work like that. And and why do, why wouldn't we have patient advocates around understanding all this? Because it's a bit complicated, but it's not that hard. I mean, and Jeff Shee can tell you that the, the, he can describe all of these projects really quite easily. But it, it, it's a matter of being you know around around the scientists, around the scientists, be partners in, in the whole process. And the scientists really need to get there. They need to be encouraged, and and they're you know they're a bit out there themselves uh, they need you know they need to be encouraged to sort of work work together and work with their patient advocacy people everywhere okay um so the next question perhaps maybe lewis since you do have some experience and practical experience in this the next question is what are some of the regulatory challenges we're facing which with hiv cure treatments especially in the areas of stem cells and gene transfer that's a great question. So we, um, 
We believe early and often is the approach to take with the FDA. I've shared this uh, strategy and plenty had shared it with us. We met uh, with the FDA 13 different times through telephone calls as well as meetings before we submitted our IND. Um, I, I dare say it was a collaborative, very open exchange with them. But there are things that are intrinsic in the process that, um, that I think need to be worked on. The first is uh, there's not a tremendous amount of clarity between the U.S. and other regulatory bodies when it comes to this particular type of therapy. Um, there's also, when you're looking at biomarkers and you're looking at the ability to come back and show standards of how the immune system is, is, is functioning, there aren't really standards yet that are established. So you have to establish your own standards and then convince the FDA that they are something that they should be looking at. The other concern is that um, because this is such a new field, if somebody is working on something that, that the FDA has seen and has worked, oftentimes um, they believe that, that that might work for you as well. So they try to bring that into the conversation, and it, it sometimes works and it sometimes doesn't. And so the, the piece of the puzzle here with uh, collaboration and to be able to, to work in uh, emphasizing and accelerating the work with the FDA oftentimes is having clear guidelines and having a clear conversation about what you need to achieve in order to move to the next step. And um, we actually were given that. Uh, we believed that, that that path was laid out for us. And in many regards, it was, it was really the milestones that became part of our ongoing process, our tasks, in order to get through and get approval for our first step. But for, for final approval, um, because this has not been done yet in our space, there's a number of additional obstacles that will need to be faced, including scalability, standardization, QAQC, what a final product looks like. Those are things that, that are left in front of us. Thank you. Hans Peter. There's, yeah, there's a big um, effort right now. Um, I'm part of the RAC and, and, and also ASGCT, and actually we, we have a committee now as well that works with the FDA to streamline and improve and facilitate some of these discussions to hopefully get these cell, cellular therapies into the clinic, uh, appropriately into the clinic uh, more, uh, more you know, earlier. Thank you. I just uh, wanted to share with you a story how a regulatory issue triggered an advance in the field, and, it, and it's also a story that involves Martin Delaney. So it was about five years ago that about 12 of us or so assembled at George Washington University, and we were there to discuss how do we give Saha or Varenostat a cancer drug to HIV-infected subjects who are quite healthy in an attempt to cure. Is that ethically appropriate? And since Marty had played such a role in terms of lobbying drug companies to, to move their agendas forward, he was at the meeting. And it was Daria Hazuda who was at this meeting, and she was presenting results from her SHRNA knockdown studies. And I'm sitting there thinking, God, we're doing the same thing. This isn't a good idea. I mean, we're doing the same thing. And I said, and... And then I said, you know, we need, really have got to start collaborating. In fact, I said we should form a collaboratory. And, and everybody kind of looked at me and like, you know, well, you're crazy. We're here to talk about Saha. But Marty Delaney said, that's exactly what we need to do. 
And so for the rest of the day, we forgot about the regulatory issue, and we plotted, we planned a collaborate, a national collaboratory to attack HIV latency. And I remember having dinner with Marty that night, and he said, I think something important here happened today. Unfortunately, and it became named after him because he, didn't, he, he did not survive to see the fruition. Uh, but NIH was at that meeting, and uh, uh, Carl Diefenbach took the, the, the message back to Tony Fauci, and they got behind it and actually put serious dollars and funded now three collaboratories uh, nationally. Um, but it, it all started with a regulatory issue, and it was the, the key, the capstone was Marty saying this is a really good idea that then just completely redirected the, the whole tenor of discussion. Can I say one quick thing? Um, sure. We've, uh, several of us in the community have worked with the Forum for Collaborative HIV Research, which is a body that puts together think tanks to put together all the stakeholders in the research, including community members, to discuss some of these issues. And we have just secured funding to do a collaborative uh, forum with several of the researchers at this table, the NIH, the FDA and community members to work out some of these regulatory problems. So uh, stay tuned. That should be coming up in the, in the next six months or so. And where can um, folks find out more information or updates on that initiative? So that more information should be shared after the meeting once there would be a report done. Um, and in, in, in preview of the meeting, there should be more information about when and where on the forum website, Forum for Collaborative HIV Research. Thank you. We have a, um, several questions regarding some potential downsides or risks of some of the approaches that were presented this evening. Um, one of the questions is, do patients that have been functionally cured continue to show any signs of chronic inflammation? Any, is it known or, or have there been studies to evaluate that particular question? I'll play Steve Deeks now, who's gone home to take care of his family. Who would say, who would have said, um, so Jeff Getty, you know, who was mentioned as having received a baboon bone marrow transplant after a whiff of cytoxin and total body radiation, had um, previously been plagued with skin rashes and uh, asthma and those those inflammatory disorders went away and although his virus load wasn't totally controlled thereafter his um, symptomatology was for the next 10 years so there's an example where the presence of um, clinical benefit was associated with the absence of inflammation and Mr. Brown also has been extensively studied and shows very low, low, low evidence of inflammation um, which is consistent with everything else that we see, which is that the more inflammation there is, the faster the disease progresses, and the more, and the more likely that virus persists. And for the more viral persistence and in inflammation is associated with a, often a shorter lifespan and other morbidities um, that themselves are associated with inflammation. So this particular question is quite interesting because you know, if it, if it does turn out to be the case that patients are cured and continue to show inflammation, then it means that the current hypothesis that the track goes the other way around is incorrect. Um, but to date, of the two cases that I know of, well, I should say that the, 
I, excuse me. I, those two cases don't show it. It's probably difficult to say because you know there's other things going on like Graffers-Holtz disease, which can cause inflammation. Yes. Sorry. So I was just saying in allergenic transplantation, if there's cure or potential cure, there's other reasons for inflammation uh, in, in the patients, like graft-versus-host disease, which, which also causes uh, inflammation. So it might be difficult to discern. Another question related to some potential um off-target effects or side effects is, if we release the latent reservoirs of HIV, are we at risk at also releasing other dormant viruses, such as HPV, hepatitis C, EBV, CMV? Anybody care to address that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really sure I'm qualified. Uh, the, uh, I think that's a concern, that, that we would certainly, we would not want to cure a cocktail that wound up inducing latency of other viruses. Now, for example, hepatitis C doesn't have a latent form of infection. It, it doesn't integrate into the host chromosome like HIV. Um, many of the herpes viruses, I mean, they, represent, they are latent, but they're not within the chromosome. They're within outside of the chromosome. So, yes, it's technically possible, but the transcription factors that drive HIV and its transcription are quite different from many of these other viruses. So I think it should be theoretically possible to come up with a cocktail that will be reasonably targeted. Not maybe not precisely, but reasonably targeted. But certainly, we have to keep an eye out for what we're doing to other other viruses, as well as genes, normal genes within the body, um, uh, with these with this type of cocktail or therapeutic. Any other responses to that? Okay, um, I think we have time for a couple more questions. There is a little bit more of a scientific question, or um, it's related to um, the anti-PD-1 antibody approach. And um, how would this antibody approach work in HIV without creating a cytokine storm by activating the immune system? <laughs> I guess I'll take that because that's we are we are testing that and that has been a problem actually in the clinic and one that um, causes some um, pause in its use for sure. So for those of you who do not understand, PD-1 is a cell surface molecule that interacts with a ligand PD-L1 or L2, which um, prevents T cells when they engage from dividing. So it basically would would um, cripple. That, that mode of division, and which can maintain, therefore, latency. And a agents that would block that interaction would allow for the cell that's not dividing to begin to divide, which could then lead to um, immune activation and cytokine storm. Um, so that's a, that's a real issue, I, I would agree. It hasn't been seen um, yet because the studies haven't been done completely, but... And an, an additional uh, question along the same vein is um, regarding a different approach, which is um, based on the CD34 um, transplants. So recent reports um, have indicated that HIV may be able to in infect um, CD34 progenitor cells. How do you make them resistant to HIV? 
these are the techniques we've been working on. There's a lot of there's been a, have been a lot of advances in the different ways, either vectors, lentiviral vectors, or these different nucleases to disrupt CCR5, the doorway for HIV. So I think this is an area where there have been where there's been really substantial, significant progress uh, to make those cells resistant to HIV. I, I, I suspect this this uh, is possible. I mean, I, I think there's a there's a long-term case that, that, that many of the blood cells will become really sensitive to this virus, and and, and so that would include the 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 um, the long-term populating hemopoietic stem cell, and you certainly don't need to lose that, and and so you you've got to give it some armory to be resistant, and that will actually arm every cell downstream, hopefully. And it's just a matter of, you know, choosing really the right cocktail, I think, to arm these cells and, and give them the... It's really... We're changing things in, a, in blood for one generation. We're not changing... We're not genetically engineering people that will inherit this. It will change the blood for that, you know, the, the, for the time, hopefully for the time of their life, and so give them a, a, a really strong resistance. If that works... It'd be fantastic, and it may well need a combination of treatments in the end to to really be effective. But you know, you've got to protect that cell. So that that is what uh, Calimune is moving forward in the clinic with. Uh, we are treating both the stem cells, the hematopoietic stem cells, and the T cells. Um, and the approach there, obviously, is to, uh, to, to have the, the stem cells provide long-term support for the T cells and the T cell population, basically a modified army that the stem cells would create. However, um, the, the type of protection that we are providing potentially uh, would be able to work against HIV infection. If that is seen, and th there are reports to show that that is true, um, that that is consistent. It potentially becomes also selective pressure for the stem cells that are modified and protected. Thank you. Maybe part of that question was related to could that set up a reservoir as well that may be resistant even to the approach, but I think it needs to be seen whether the intrinsic or the host CD34 cells are, are um, susceptible. Um, and then I, I guess um, the final question, I think we'll have to end with this one, is uh, just related to the Draco construct from MIT. Does anybody have any comments on, on that or knowledge? I don't, there's, that's just a question, so I don't know if there's any comments regarding that construct. This is the single most popular download from a journal called PLOS One. Um, it's an agent which um, causes cells that are infected with a bunch of different viruses to die. Um, I'd say it's very early in its testing. The data that, that um, have been presented in PLOS One are the, a paper in N of One with a small number of experiments. A lot of press for some reason that's not clear to me. So it's one of those scientific advances, which um, I would just encourage you to keep your eyes open and wait to see how other labs reproduce it and what occurs. Okay, perfect. Well, I think we have reached our two-hour mark. I, no. oh. and so when you block the, uh, the five receptor, what about the four receptor? <laughs> there is HIV interest in that, and, and then we'll just self-select self uh, that being 
why I think the ultimate approach has to be like with the C46 that we've been working on as well that really blocks both CCR, the, no, CCR5 and CXCR4. Um, so C46 would also block, uh, no. Uh, right, but I mean, animal studies, uh, when they block the four receptors, cause issues. Not with this particular C46 uh, fusion inhibitor. There's lots of animal studies out there uh, that have really been, I think, very safe so far. I'm really curious about ethics and how um, uh, money you might, uh, researchers, doctors, um, um, newspaper people, um, when they have money invested in certain companies or working for certain <coughs> companies or lobbying for certain companies within the cure, is that legal or ethical? And what are your thoughts about that? Would any of you all be willing to say that you work for a company and you get paid for a company? And would that interfere with sharing information with other researchers? I would love to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I, you know, I think the science we can handle, and I think we can bring together the teams, and I think we can do proof-of-concept experiments. But I'm really um, struggling, and I need your help from the community, to think about commercialization, because commercialization not only brings up the ethical issues that you raise, but in general, the goal of you know, many um, biopharmaceutical companies in the Western world to make lots of money. And that, that requires that values in that given company be maintained for the shareholder. And we've heard, I think, from everybody that it is highly unlikely that one drug is going to win the game here. It's most likely that it will be a combination of drugs, and those drugs are most likely going to be owned by a combination of companies. And it is most likely that some of those drugs, if not all, will be before FDA approval and therefore not um, valued as completely as they might be. So, is this impossible? No. Okay, so, you know, you may remember back in the day, um, the community here did bring together companies to share drugs and to put them together into combinations. Now, most of those were already marketed, okay? Now, for TB and other um, less um, um, lucrative diseases, I guess I might say, um, companies are putting together drugs in the preclinical space. But right now, I think the major challenge in, in affecting a cure, not just in the developing world, but in developing parts of the healthcare system in our world, it's going to be necessary for that combination of drugs to be available. And the only way that's going to happen is if we change our business models so that the ethical issues that you're discussing do not occur, uh, most of them related to you know um, having money um, taint well, decisions. And I know about some something that's happening, and I talked to it to a few people, and then I announced it to the world, and the next day that stock goes up. So I'm wondering about insider trading, and and what what you know is is it all right to promote the company that you work with? and have others promote that company. Even though I like that they're curing people and there's research going on, is it necessary for the people involved to disclose if they're blogging about that or having other people talk about a certain drug when they have an investment in that biotech company, let's say? I don't have a financial advisor. 
But, but, I, but I feel like um, a lot of people don't have those same opportunities there. And then I feel that it might interfere with, um, with research itself, with the patents and all that, 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 that things will be bought by China or, or another firm or something. And then the people that are living and dying of HIV, we don't even get you know, the extra you know, stock dividend. We die. <laughs> You know, or get old faster. So I'm just wondering, how do you all feel about that ethically, or is it even legal? So I, I can speak from the, the corporate standpoint. Our company was established uh, really by frustrated scientists that came together to, because they knew that there was limitation in the work that they were doing at an academic level to transition over to actually bringing it to patients which is really the vehicle of a commercial body. Most of the academic institutions are not really set up in order to take that leap. Um, though there are more grant funding mechanisms, and in fact, CERM uh, has done a fantastic job of helping to bridge the gap for a lot of academic institutions in that regard. Um, when it comes to conflicts of interest, so um, I don't want to speak for academicians, but there's always disclosure. And in fact, when we're working with institutions, we have to go through conflicts of interest checks as well. And so it's an important piece of the process. When dealing in the public, there are publicly traded companies. Everybody has to deal with their own process and ethics of how they deal with information that they receive, not all of which you, you get over the Internet is accurate, as, as we had talked about. So um, sometimes that's good information. Sometimes it's bad information that people move forward on. Um, but, uh, but in the case of dealing between academic institutions and industry, there are a lot of rules and regulations that each group has. So each institution has their own set, and oftentimes it has to go in front of committees in order to get approval. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. Just one comment and one quick question. Uh, the comment is thank you very much to all of you and Jeff on for bringing not only just great science, but equally important, a little bit of optimism here. Listening to you, it really feels that it's not a matter of uh, a bit, but it's really a matter of when. And I have to say, knowing that all of you have spent your life in the most difficult, challenging scientific arena, just having a cautious optimism from you is very refreshing and quite encouraging. So thank you for this. My question is, you, you mentioned that the ultimate goal is obviously to try to eradicate HIV, or at least to cure HIV, to overall outreach. In your wildest dream, and knowing already the challenge of even bringing uh, treatments to impoverished uh, countries or low-income countries, in your wildest dream, how does it look like for this intervention for Africa? Can I dream? Um, you want to dream? Go ahead. No, no, you go dream first. Dreaming is good. Dreaming is the stuff that makes science move. And the dream is um, a country that has... Um, the ability to track patients um, who are at risk to catch HIV, who are diagnosed early, who are placed on combination therapy early, who are then given intervention or interventions that would eradicate HIV over a period of time. I would guess that period of time would be measured in terms of years, months to years, during which time the patient would be tracked to make sure that um, you know he or she was... Um, was not withstanding side effects from the medication, and then they would be taken off therapy. 
Now, curiously, you know, there are some countries in the world in which that's easier to do than in the United States. There are medical record systems that can be set up in developing countries that are more easily done than here, for instance. And healthcare access is, in some countries, um, more accessible than here, even though it is October 1st and the Affordable Care Act is out. So my dream, I, I think, is actually, in this dream that I have, it is more likely true that, that it's going to happen in a place like Zimbabwe, um, which I just visited with some of my good friends here, than it would in um, many parts of the United States. So is that I too optimistic? Same, yes. Since we've talked about <laughs> genetic modification, my dream, and there's certain examples already, I think, it's not going to be that we take out the cells and do these complicated procedures like transplantation. It really has to be that we have a cryovial of virus or agent that we can target in vivo. So we can actually ship that cryovial to these countries and hopefully simply inject and then that this particular agent and reagent will find the stem cell or the T cell and modify the T cell in the patient. Um, and I, I, this would, would be my biggest dream. And maybe combined with a vaccination approach, then uh, could be a simple, again, could be shipped with cryovials around the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I share that. You, you've actually got to do it in vivo. And, and I, I think there are animal experiments which you can actually, you can show things like zinc finger nucleoses actually work in vivo. So, you know, are you game enough or, or should you sh be game enough to, to take this on at some point in time? My own feeling, having done things that people thought I shouldn't do uh, and it worked, is that you should. You know, it's a terrible disease in that part of the world, and it's 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 actually it's actually crashing that those societies in a way which is totally deplorable and I don't think well understood really outside those places. So, so I, I actually think yeah yeah the dream is that you, you actually take your best shot and and you're able you'll have to put it in a syringe I guess and you need to deliver it. And you, you hope to hell that you, you, you can actually have a big enough impact, you know, to try and, you know, work towards eradicating this disease. If we don't eradicate it from there, it's forever going to appear in some other way, in some other guise, uh, in some other place. So we, we need to do that. So the dream is that we start here and then we try and figure out what's the best shot for going there. This... This, is, this dream is a necessity. With 35 million people infected, now 26 million need treatment. Of that 26 million, uh, about 17 million are not able to access antiretroviral therapy. They're dying. So, uh, and we see in Africa, for example, PEPFAR slots are shrinking. Uh, global fund monies are the slots for, for antiretroviral therapy. People can't get on. Um, I mean, the only hope, the only hope for Africa is a cure, uh, because we're not, uh, we're, we're simply, the world is not able and not willing to put the money forward that's necessary uh, to really take, to put everybody for the rest of their life on antiretroviral therapy. That's, it's a huge number. So the cure is absolutely essential for Africa. So therefore, whatever the cure is, it has to be scalable, it has to be safe, and it has to be usable um, in the developing world. Thank you very much to everybody. I know that there are some um, additional questions, but I think some people want to go home and dream. 
probably it's getting a little late. Thank you very much for everybody's participation. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.